Praise the Lord for that. If you have your Bibles, be turning to Matthew chapter 1 today. Matthew chapter number 1. Well, you're probably wondering why Pastor David is standing back to my right or sitting back to my right. It's because he has a spiritual gift that I don't have. And it's called name pronunciation. You might have thought he was like we started a new security process. Not only do we need Kurt on the front row, just in case one of y'all get crazy and try to come get me. But now we got guy right here behind me. But you know I would pick a security guard a little stronger than Dave. So um, if I was going to put one on the platform. (laughs) When I began to study what I was going to preach today, I'm in the first 17 verses. It's called a genealogy. And I began to try to read it. And then I, I looked up the words on YouTube, like, how do you pronounce this? And then they pronounced it, and then I tried, and I couldn't do it. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to ask the scholar on staff to come do his thing. And so he's not going to preach, but he's going to read the text for us. How's that? That's what I pay him the big bucks to do around here. The first 17 verses, he's going to read for us in all seriousness. I love Pastor David and his love for the truth. So he's going to come read the scripture for us, and then we'll study today. chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Pharez and Zerah of Thamar, and Pharez begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram. And Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nasan, and Nasan begat Salmon. And Salmon beget Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz beget Obed of Ruth, and Obed beget Jesse. And Jesse beget David the king, and David the king beget Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon beget Reboam, and Reboam beget Abiah, and Abiah beget Asa. And Asa beget Josaphat, and Josaphat beget Joram, and Joram beget Ozias. And Ozias beget Jotham, and Jotham beget Achaz. And Achaz beget Ezekias, and Ezekias beget Manassas, and Manassas beget Ammon, and Ammon beget Josias. And Josias beget Jeconias and his brethren about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias beget Salathiel, and Salathiel beget Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel beget Abiud, and Abiud beget Eliakim. And Eliakim beget Azor, and Azor beget Sadok. And Sadok beget Achim, and Achim beget Eliud. And Eliud beget Eleazar, and Eleazar beget Mathan, and Mathan beget Jacob. And Jacob beget Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are fourteen generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ, our 14 generations. The word of the Lord. A hand. It's impressive. The title of the message today is The First Christmas Tree. A genealogy of grace. Of course, we're not talking about the Christmas trees like we have set up on the platform and in the foyer. We're talking about a family tree today. A genealogy. Now, let me ask you to be honest. How many of you, as you come to a section like this, when you're reading your Bible, either skim it or skip it altogether? 
or at the very best you wonder, what in the world is this all about? That's understandable because most of us aren't into genealogies, especially not someone else's genealogy. Truth be told, I'm not really even into my own family tree. I feel like I have enough relatives to keep up with that I don't need to go to some website and pay money to research any additional family members. You know what I mean? I love my family, but I got enough. I'm cool. You probably think the same thing after going home for Thanksgiving. You know, your hands are full already. You don't need any more. In all seriousness, we might think it odd for Matthew to lead off his gospel with what feels to us like a snoozer. A genealogy. But there's a reason that he does. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so. It's not an accident. It's actually a really big part of the Christmas story. See, Matthew is writing to Jewish people. And the point of his gospel is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. The King. In fact, the King of all kings. But Matthew knew his audience. He knew that if his Jewish readers were going to accept Jesus as king, they'd have to have some proof that he came down through the royal line, the line of David. The Jews were tenacious about their pedigree. So if anybody was going to be presented to them as king, it was absolutely essential that he have the pedigree to prove it. Thus, Matthew inspired by the Holy Spirit, works hard to give this descending line all the way from David, the royal line, down to Joseph and to Jesus. As I began to think about what I wanted to, how I wanted to present this genealogy and, and what I wanted to pull out of it for the sermon series today, I, I thought about Matthew's purpose, Jesus as king. If that was Matthew's purpose in his gospel, to, to prove that he was the king of kings, then what do we learn about the kingship of Jesus from this genealogy? Well, we learn this. He wasn't like other kings. He wasn't a king that ruled by the letter of the law. He wasn't a king that ruled with an iron fist. Matthew's genealogy, this first family tree, teaches us that Jesus as king ruled by something else. He ruled by grace. In fact, God couldn't even lay down the royal credentials of his son through Matthew's pen without spilling grace all over the page. The very people he chose to be his ancestors reveal the wonder of his grace. And it gives hope to every sinner. Here's the sermon. Four places in the genealogy of King Jesus where we see his grace. I'm going to talk about those four places. I'm indebted to an author, a pastor, really a New Testament scholar of our day currently that, that has benefit, I've benefited from greatly. His name's John MacArthur. He helped me to understand this in a way I never understood it before. And so we're going to give these four places where we see grace. And then at the end of the sermon, we're going to make what I believe is some very, very important application. What I think can be life-changing for someone here today. Number one, the grace of God is seen in the choice of one woman. We won't cover this chronologically, we'll cover it more logically. So look down to verse 16 in your Bible. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. God showed his grace to Mary by choosing her to be the mother of Jesus. And although she descended from the royal line of David, 
If you know Mary, you know that she was just an ordinary, unknown young woman. Now, she was likely much better morally and spiritually than most people around her. But it's important to understand that Mary actually wasn't sinless. Like some religions would have you think. She was a really, really good woman. But she wasn't sinless. So the notions of her being co-redemptrix or or, or co-mediator with Christ, I believe, are wholly unscriptural. That's why we don't pray to Mary. Jesus was Mary's son, yes, but that doesn't mean that she wouldn't need Jesus to be her savior, just like everyone else. In fact, Mary herself confessed such in Luke chapter 1. My soul doth magnify the Lord, she said, and my spirit hath rejoiced, listen, in God my savior. Even though Mary was a devout lady, a pure lady, a virgin girl, she recognized that she was still a sinner who needed a savior. Isn't it amazing that God chose to bring his son into the world through a very ordinary, obscure, young, poor, and yes, even sinful woman from Nazareth? That's a picture of his grace today. Not only is his grace seen in the choice of one woman. Secondly, the grace of God is seen in the descendants of two men. Look at verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Both, both David and Abraham, we're going to study in a second, were sinners. Yet by God's grace, they were ancestors of Jesus Christ. Think about David for a moment. David sinned terribly in committing adultery with Bathsheba. And then he compounded that sin by having her husband Uriah killed so that he could marry her. We're studying that on Sunday nights right now. David is also a a classic example of a poor father. He was passive. He overlooked the failures of his kids. He didn't discipline his children. And one of whom, Absalom, which we're studying on Sunday nights, tried to usurp the throne from his father by armed rebellion. 1 Chronicles 22 verse 8 teaches us that David had slaughtered countless men. And for that reason wasn't allowed to build the temple. Of course, David was a man after God's own heart, the greatest king of Israel, perhaps, but he still messed up time and time again, didn't he? Think about Abraham. Abraham lied about his wife in Egypt and brought them both into shame. Abraham disbelieved God about having a child. He took matters into his own hands and then he committed adultery with Hagar. And then again, for a second time, Abraham lied about Sarah and gave her to the king as if she was his sister. Now, of course, Abraham was a great man of faith at times, but he was also a man who wrestled with sin just like we do. Yet God made Abraham the father of his chosen people from whom the Messiah would arise. He made David the father of the royal line from whom the Messiah would descend. So so Jesus was the son of David by royal descent. He was the son of Abraham by racial descent. That's the point Matthew wants to make. And it's all because of God's grace. And his grace didn't stop with David and it didn't stop with Abraham. His grace continued with David's son. And it continued with Abraham's son, who, by the way, were sinners. Just study Solomon. Unmatched wisdom. Seemed to be a well-tempered guy at first. But lived a life of stupidity and folly and greatly exceeded his his dad's sin of sexual sexual adultery and fornication and and all of that. Isaac, though a good man, messed up time and time again. 
Yet Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, the greater son of Abraham, came to overcome the failures of both of those lines and their seeds and to accomplish what they could never accomplish. This is Jesus, friend. This is Jesus. He came through Abraham. He came through David. He came through a poor, obscure young woman named Mary. Notice thirdly, the grace of God is seen in the history of three eras. The last verse of our text in verse 17 points this out. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Did you see what Matthew did? He separated these three eras into three generations of 14. The first period is the period that he mentions from Abraham to David. If you know your Bible, this is the period of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. It's the period of the judges when people like Deborah and Barak and Jephthah and Samson were empowered by God to deliver his people. Some exciting times, exciting stories in that first period. The second period is the period from David to the carrying away of Babylon. In other words, from David's kingship to when they, they, they got into captivity in Babylon. It's a period of decline. The first a period of, is a period of ascendancy. As Israel goes basically from non-existence at Abraham's time to fame through countless victories and miracles that put them on the map. But the second period is a period of monarchy. And as soon as the monarchy came with King Saul, you remember what happened. We studied it last Sunday morning. Things started to go downhill. From David and following, you have some glory days in Solomon. But after Solomon, tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. This means the second period that Matthew writes about is a period of apostasy. It's a period of degeneracy that ultimately ends up in the destruction of Israel and the captivity in Babylon. Then he talks about the third captivity from cat, or the third period from captivity all the way to Christ. Now, we don't know much about this period. It's a period shrouded in darkness. It's 600 years of datelessness. Names we don't even know that David read in the genealogy arose from this period. It's oblivion. It was the dark ages. Nevertheless, hear me, God's grace was at work on behalf of his people just the same through all three periods of time. John MacArthur helps us. He said, the national genealogy of Jesus is one of mingled glory and pathos, heroism and disgrace, renown and obscurity. But all along, even though the whole nation is going down the tubes until finally they curse and spit on their own Messiah, it is nevertheless through that nation that the Messiah comes. That's called grace. How many would agree from studying your Old Testament scriptures that God had every right To cancel his promise to Abraham and and to David and to Israel. But he he kept faithful to it. Israel rises and they fall. They stagnate. And then they're uh, held captive by a foreign nation. Yet God in his infinite grace still sent his Messiah through them. The grace of God is seen in the choice of one woman. The descendants of two men. The history of three eras. Notice lastly, the grace of God is seen in the inclusion of four outsiders. The fact that the genealogy mentions the name of women is remarkable. Given how women were viewed and treated in the first century. A woman had no legal rights. 
She was completely subject to her husband's power. According to New Testament scholar Michael Green, a Jewish man, he said, thank God every morning that he had not been created a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. It's sad. To put it bluntly, it would have been scandalous in that day for Matthew to put these women's women's names in here. And they weren't just any women. Each one of them carried with them a stigma. An asterisk next to their name. Every time a faithful Jewish person heard this genealogy read out loud in the temple or in the synagogue, they would squirm. Matthew starts by mentioning a woman by the name of Tamar in verse 3. This is a name most Jewish people likely wanted to forget. She's mentioned in Genesis 38 as the wife of a man named Ur. One of the two sons of Judah. I'll just really give you a summation of her life. Ur was a pathetic husband and he was killed by God. When he died, according to the customs at that time, his oldest brother, Onan, was was to marry Tamar and continue the family line. But he was a pathetic husband and God struck him dead as well. Hey, guys, aren't you thankful this isn't the rules for us? Be A lot of dead men in here today. Judah is now down two sons and he only has three. Legally speaking, pay close attention. Tamar was supposed to be given Judah's third son, Shelah. But but at this point, Judah starts feeling like Tamar must be cursed. And he doesn't want to lose his last son. So he stalls. Not for weeks, for years. And Tamar figures out that Judah is never going to let her marry the third son. So she gets desperate and devises a plan. She found that her father-in-law has a weakness for prostitutes. So she dresses up like a prostitute. She seduces him and gets pregnant with Perez and Zerah. Three months after she gets pregnant, she starts showing like all women do. And Judah, who has no idea it's his babies, orders that Tamar be stoned because she's been sleeping around. And so they drag her out to stone her and she screams out loud, I have here the belt of the man whose babies these are. And it's Judah's belt. And now he's in an awkward situation. I wonder what it was like around their Thanksgiving table that year. Kind of makes your family look a little less messy, huh? But it doesn't end there. The next woman is... Is Rahab. She didn't dress up and act like a prostitute. She was an actual prostitute. She was scandalous. Her story is told in Joshua 2 when the Jewish spies came in to, to, to scout out the land of Jericho. She was the one who hid them in her home and protected them from the government police. She did that because she had heard of the miracles of God that he had wrought with Israel in Egypt and in the wilderness. And unlike all the people in her country, she turned to faith in Yahweh. Then she provided critical intelligence that helped Israel defeat that fortified city called Jericho. And because she did that, she was given safe harbor in Israel. She was grafted into the Jewish nation. God's grace brought her into the Messianic line as the wife of Salmon and the mother of Boaz, who is David's great-grandfather. Somebody were to look at Rahab from a distance. They would say, she's in Jesus' family? The next woman mentions Bathsheba. Even if you don't know the Bible very well, you might have heard of Bathsheba. 
The one King David looked upon when she was bathing. It was the biggest scandal during the reign of Israel's greatest king. Most of us think of the story in terms of what it means for David. But let's think about Bathsheba for a moment. Did you know the Bible never really seems to bring judgment on her for her place in David's life? It's likely that when David summoned her from her home, she had little choice but to comply. If you were a woman in the ancient world and the king told you to do something, you obeyed. The magnitude of David's sin cannot be overstated. He exploited this woman. He used his power to get from her what he wanted in the moment. Bathsheba's life was one of difficulty. It was one of sorrow. She was unpopular, likely even despised in Israel and in David's family. And yet here she appears in Matthew's retelling of the story of Israel and the promise of the Redeemer. Are you getting this today? Does this mean anything to you? This is remarkable. The fourth woman mentioned is a woman by the name of Ruth. Unlike the other three women, women, she doesn't have the sexually sordid backstory. She isn't a victim of abuse. And yet to the Jewish person hearing Matthew's account, her appearance would be just as offensive. And here's why. She wasn't Jewish. Not only was Ruth not Jewish, she was a Moabite. Moabites were not only non or non-Jewish, just simply Gentiles, they were one of Israel's sworn enemies. They weren't even allowed to enter into the worship gathering of Israel because way back in the day, they were idolaters who refused to help Israel as they made their way from Egypt. In God's sovereignty, hear me, he sends a Hebrew family to Moab where Ruth lives. One of the sons marries Ruth. But then he dies and Ruth becomes a widow and Ruth decides to take the risk and go back to Bethlehem, Judah with her mother-in-law because she wants to begin to worship the one true God instead of remaining an idolater in Moab. That means she would become a Moabite widow in a foreign land, which would have made her very vulnerable. But if you know that story, you know that God protected her by sending her a wealthy man named Boaz to take care of her and give her provision and fall in love with her and marry her. And they did what married people do. And they had kids. And she eventually became the great grandmother of King David. Right there in the line of Jesus. Again, that is a picture of God's redemptive grace. Four women who would make the average Jewish reader blush are all placed into the family tree of the Messiah. One woman, two descendants, three eras, and four outcasts scream at us today that we serve a God who gives amazing grace. In fact, look down at verse 21. I think it'll be on the screen today. This sums it up. And she, that's Mary, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name. What's the name? Isn't that just a great name to say, isn't it? Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, follow me, is the Greek equivalent for the Old Testament name, Yeshua or Joshua, which means this, Jehovah saves. That's the point of the entire genealogy. King Jesus came to save sinners. He didn't come like other kings to be served. He didn't come to rule on a royal throne 
and overthrow the oppressive Roman government like the disciples wanted him to do. He came to love. He came to restore. He came to redeem. He came to forgive. He came to save. In fact, the genealogy is bookended with Jesus. Verse 1 starts the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And in between the two bookends are the names of some really, really bad, messed up people. And the point is clear. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, Jesus wants to save you. His grace can meet you right where you are. His grace can rewrite your story. And His grace can give you a place in the family of God. If like Abraham and David, you have some really messy parts of your past, and maybe you're paying the price for it through the dysfunction of your own family, listen, God's grace can still meet you there. If like Mary, you're rather unknown... You've never been popular, never wanted to be, and maybe you even come from a poor family. Hear me, God's grace can meet you there. If like Tamar, you're reaping the consequences of a failed marriage or marriages, and maybe you've done some things out of desperation that you regret. Hear me, friend, God's grace can meet you there. If like Bathsheba, you've been exploited, and now your reputation is damaged and your confidence is totally destroyed. If you've been treated poorly by a man who said he loved you, but did nothing but hurt you, and you've got the emotional scars to prove it, God's grace can meet you there. If like Rahab, you're caught up in sin right now, even scandalous sin that embarrasses you, God's grace can meet you there. It doesn't matter what season of life you're in right now. You can be in a period of ascension where everything is going really good and everything looks up for you. Or you can be in a period of descension where everything looks down and nothing's going right. Or you can be in a period where life just feels dark and it feels pointless and you have no purpose. And it seems like God is silent. It doesn't matter what season of life you're in. God's grace can meet you there. I want you to understand if there's room in the family of God for Rahab and Tamar, Abraham and Jacob, Ruth and Bathsheba, David and Judah, there is room for all of us. David Platt said it well. These names are included in the line that leads to Christ. So that you can know that your name can be included in the line that leads from Christ. This genealogy teaches us that God's grace can take what's broken and make it whole. He can redeem somebody that everyone else would throw away. I'm reminded of a story I read several years ago about a poor community in Paraguay. That community is literally located, get this, in a landfill. There is more than 1,500 tons of trash there, dumped there every single day. And more than 100 residents scratch out a living there by digging through the trash and looking for something that can be recycled and sold. Yet this community in Paraguay has become known for something other than a landfill. Something you never guess. 
You ready for this? This community in Paraguay is known for an amazing orchestra. Not your average big city philharmonic with violins and grand pianos. It's a children's orchestra in which all the players live right there in the slums, right there at the landfill. When a man by the name of Fabio Chavez, a young professional musician, heard about this, he went over there for a visit and he was horrified by the living conditions he saw and that no one was doing anything about it for these kids. So he decided to open up a small music school there. Before long, he was surrounded by children from the slums who were ready to learn, but they had no instruments. So so Chavez, he had earlier met a trash picker named Nicholas Gomez, who could almost find anything out of a mound of garbage. And Chavez went to Nicholas and said, I want you to look for a special kind of trash. Bring me anything we could recycle into an instrument. In a matter of a few days, they made a cello from an oil can and old cooking tools. They made a flute from tiny little cans, a drum set with old x-rays as the skins, a violin from from beat-up aluminum salad bowls and strings tuned with forks. It was amazing. If you and I had visited that landfill, we would have seen and felt and heard the sadness. But Chavez saw and heard something different. Not what was, but what could be. He heard beautiful music emerging from the slums. And it's known today as the landfill harmonic. When I read the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus Christ, it kind of looks and sounds like a landfill full of junk. The slums. People that are so broken and so messed up and so embarrassing that the world would say, throw them away. But aren't you thankful God decided to make something beautiful out of their broken lives? See, that's why Jesus left the throne room of heaven to come to the landfill slum of earth. He gave up perfection for pain. He gave up beauty for brokenness. He said, hey, strike up the band. He heard weeping and wailing and he wanted to turn that into joy and laughter. And that's what he wants to do in your life today. If you let him. He wants to take your brokenness and turn it, turn it into something beautiful. He wants to bring you into his family. Your name may never show up on the pages of scripture in Matthew's genealogy, but hear me. God wants to write your name down in the Lamb's book of life. The question is, how do you get there? How do you become a part of God's family? I love explaining the gospel with Four words, God, man, Jesus, and response. Gospel means good news. This is what you have to believe in order to become a member of God's family. But the good news doesn't actually start with the cross. The good news starts all the way back in the first book of the Bible, in the first verse of the Bible, with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Most people don't understand enough about God to understand the good news. God is your creator. That means you answer to him. The the creator doesn't answer to the created one. The created one answers to the creator. What do we know about God's character? We know he's loving. We've sung about that. We know he's gracious. 
We know he's kind. We know he's forgiving. But you know what else we know about God? He's holy. And he's just. And he's righteous. And he's so perfectly just that he will not let the created ones get away with their sin. He cannot turn the other way. And that's where man comes in. Man is guilty of sin. Sinning against a holy creator, their authority, God. The Bible says in the book of Exodus that God will by no means clear the guilty. He can't. That is unjust of him to do. He will not clear the guilty. You've sinned against God. I've sinned against God. We have done something, said something, thought something that was contrary to his standard written in the scripture. And because of that, friend, listen to me, we are guilty. We're all guilty. Every man is a sinner. There is none righteous, no, not one, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. That's not the end of the story, though. You need to understand that you've broken God's law or else you'll never understand the rest of the good news. You are helpless because of your sin. You cannot make yourself right with the Father. You aren't that good. You aren't that perfect. That's where Jesus comes in. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus came from heaven. This is why he was born of a virgin. If he was conceived from Joseph's seed, then Jesus would have had Joseph's sin. He had to be born of a virgin so that he could be sinless. The son of God walking in, in, in his flesh, clothes like we wear on the dust and the ground, like, like we walk on. He, he did that for over three decades. He did that and he never sinned once. If he even sinned one time, then he couldn't be a spotless lamb to take away the sins of the world. He remained sinless. He lived a perfect life. He died a horrific death. He was buried in a real grave. And three days later, he rose to solidify that he was who he said he was. How do you get in on that? You just happens by osmosis. You just show up and you hear the name Jesus. You're like, okay, I can go with that. No, it's a little deeper than that. Your response is twofold. If you want in on this, you want to accept the gift from Jesus, through Jesus, from God. If you want in on this, you got to respond in two ways. Through repentance and through faith. Repentance means turning from something. If I'm going west, but I need to go to Wichita, which is east, then I'm going to turn my car around and I'm going to head that way on Highway 54. That's repenting of going west and starting to go east. Repentance from sin means you turn from your sin. Hear me though, that doesn't mean you have to be sinless. Even when you turn from your sin, you will forever struggle with sinning the rest of your life. It means that when you turn from sin, you are no longer complying with it. You are now taking God's side against your sin. You're now saying this, I am going to repent. I'm going to turn from that. And with God's help, I am not going to be enslaved to that sin any longer. Yes, I will mess up along the way. And I will likely mess up every day along the way. But I am going to fight against sin. I'm repenting of it. I'm not going to try to get Jesus and then hang on to my sin at the same time. That's not repentance. And until you're ready to turn from sin, you are not ready to turn to God. 
But then there's faith. Faith means reliance. Reliance. Simply means if you tell your little kid to jump off this platform and you say, Daddy will catch you. You want him to have faith that you will catch him. And if he jumps, that means he demonstrated reliance that you will catch him before he goes splat. What are you having faith in? What are you relying on? You're relying on Jesus. That, that's what faith is. It's not just mentally assenting to the fact that, yeah, he died on the cross, he was buried and he rose again. Boo, I'm saved. No, it means that you are placing all your, all your ducks in that basket. Is that the phrase? I didn't ask your opinion. It just means that, that you're putting literally all, all your trust, all your faith. You're completely banking on Jesus to get you to heaven. You are not leaning on your baptism. You're not leaning on your church membership. You're not leaning on your righteous behavior. You are saying, I can do nothing. My righteousness is but filthy rags. I cannot stand before the Father if I don't stand with Jesus and through Jesus. And so I'm believing in Him. That's your response. I want to invite you in just about a minute and a half. We're going to stand to our feet. And we're going to give an invitation for Christians to come and pray and worship through prayer. Eli's going to sing a song where we can worship in song. I want to invite you to come and, and, and get with Pastor David down here and say, man, I want to do that. I want to know more about that. Maybe that's why God brought you to Fellowship Baptist Church today. So you can finally understand that he loves you and he wants to save you. And this is how you get into his family. But listen. Maybe you already are saved. Maybe you've received Christ by faith and repentance and you're in the family of God. But if you're honest today, your life is pretty messy. It's pretty messy. In some ways for you, it feels like everything's coming unraveled at once. There's disappointment and there's depression and there's relational difficulties and there's emotional mental breakdowns. There's stress beyond what you think you can take any longer. There's financial setbacks and the list could go on. The genealogy speaks to you as well. Because it shows us that God was at work in the ugliest of situations, bringing forth his beautiful son. Every name in the family line of the Messiah had baggage and they had major, major baggage. But none of it hindered God's purposes through their life. Which tells me this, God can take the brokenness of whatever you're in, even if it's brokenness of your own doing, and redeem it for his glory. Maybe you just need to humble yourself and come give it all to God today. You know you're a child of his, but you need to just let him take control of your life again. If maybe you're not saved and you're like, man, I don't know if I can do that today. There's a connection card in, in the seat back in front of you. I want you to come and talk to Pastor David. Some of you need to do that. I know you do. But if you can't do that today, I want you to fill out the back of that connection card. I want you to write in there that you're interested in believing. And Pastor David will follow up with you this week and set up a time in the next few days to meet you here at the church and talk you through that. But listen to me, getting saved, becoming a child of God, that is the most important decision you will make all Christmas. You hear me? I know you've got a lot of important decisions you're making in your life right now, none of which are more important than will I say yes to Jesus today. I want to call upon you to do that. Would you stand to your feet every head?